Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Welcome back to another all-new Exes for Podcasts, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today, it's another X-Men X Wednesday here, and we're going to be taking a look at the next installments of the 10 Lives and Deaths of Wolverine event, as well as the return of fan-favorite series Ecstatics with a look back at 2018's Giant Size Ecstatics before we turn our attention to this year's brand new The Excellent Number 1. But first, I want to talk for a minute about the Life of Wolverine Infinity comic over on Marvel Unlimited. Life of Wolverine has been a sort of side series parallel to the X Lives and X Deaths miniseries. It's been written by Jim Zub with art by Ramon Box and Hava Tartaglia and VCs Joe Sabino over on Letters. This has been another one of the sort of breakout standout Marvel Unlimited pieces for me. We've been covering a lot of the Infinity comics and a number of them have felt perhaps a little bit long, some of them felt a little bit short, but if nothing else I feel as though each one of these Infinity Comics is sort of playing a part in illustrating the narrative of Wolverine. There's admittedly perhaps a part of me that recognizes the strategic value of the design of this miniseries as well. Taking a look back at Life of Wolverine number one, there are some contextualizing elements that help explore the ideas that are going to be set up in 10 Lives and 10 Deaths of Wolverine. The idea of Wolverine sort of chrono skimming with the help of Jean Grey in an attempt to stop Omega Red. There's a lot to that sort of eight-page bonus that sets up what Ben Percy is exploring in his dual miniseries event and without it I felt as though I didn't have as strong a grip on the end media res storytelling that Ben Percy was using to engage the reader from step one what's interesting about that first story is it might as well come with and to check out the events leading up to 10 lives and 10 deaths of Wolverine in the pages of X-Force and Wolverine by Ben Percy and I don't even mean that cynically but rather it helped explore the ideas for somebody who wanted a way to gain access to the narrative being explored in the event. From there, Life of Wolverine number two got an admittedly very short discussion from me in its last feature. And I think it's because I found it to be a very easy way to shorthand so much of Origin 1 and 2 because Wolverine Origin is such a divisive story and I don't think just for me, but I think for a lot of fandom. And it has to do with the idea that when your greatest asset is your mystery, is that unknown factor, by putting an answer to it, you have to hope that the reveal of what Wolverine's backstory is, is as great as the possibilities that everybody has spent since 1974 imagining. And it's such a difficult task to accomplish, whether you are a fan of Wolverine the X-Men in the pages of the X-Titles, or you're a fan of Wolverine the Soldier in his solo series, or Wolverine in Magipur, or Tokyo in those titles. Perhaps you like Wolverine with weapons 
Weapon H or as Weapon X in the pages of Marvel Comics Presents, or you like him in Alpha Flight. You're a fan of him as an Avenger or in team-ups with Spider-Man. There are so many versions of Logan for you to interact with that the idea that Logan's origin could be pinned down to six issues. Number one is not really what they tried to do. They a little bit more tried to contextualize Logan's parentage and a bit of his early days by creating symbolic reference points and reflection points, right? In many ways, I guess this was a better version of Trouble that they did over (laughs) in Amazing Spider-Man, right? But because Logan has such a complex narrative in his modern existence, trying to simplify his backstory down after the fact isn't the same thing as being able to summarize Batman's backstory as he watched his parents get murdered. Because Batman starts with that, because Peter Parker starts with he saw his uncle die, it can be that transformatively powerful. But if after 60 years you say, oh, it all happened because this one traumatic event, it creates a lot of responsibility on the reveal of that event to carry 50 years of canon on its back. And that's a lot for any event to do. So I think there's a natural resistance to a lot of what Origin and Origin 2 represent, but Origin 2 by Kieran Gillen certainly hits a lot of the notes better for me, and I do think it's perhaps how quickly Zub and the phenomenal art crew of Box and Tartaglia here sort of have to move through the events of that story so quickly, because it's not really a story that has a lot of direct bearing on who Logan is now. It's maybe a little bit more fascinating that Logan intersected with Mr. Sinister that early in his narrative, especially with the possibility of Kieran Gillen, the writer of Wolverine Origin 2, coming back to the X-Men to write inevitably Sinister over in the pages of Immortal X-Men. It really feels like a great moment of kind of cross-promotional synergy. And once again, while not in a cynical regard, but certainly in a marketing standpoint, if you want to know more about this period of Logan's life, you would be able to pick up Origin and Origin 2, which sort of trade really well in these two single volumes, and they have a very unique look. Now, the art on these titles was shared by the Kubert brothers. Now, you know, their father is legend. The Kubert school is, of course, one of the most probably recognized names in, like, comic book schoolery. And Andy did the first volume of Origin, and Adam did the second volume of Origin. And this sort of dynamic sense of bigger than big art coming from a line of artists who belong to a family. There's like a lineage to it. There's a sort of grandioseness, and it certainly doesn't make their art any less special. It maybe just kind of adds a cultural level to it, a a sort of appreciation that knowing that they are part of a long tradition of artists, knowing that they are part of sort of the industry, it kind of does add something a little bit more to it. So even if in a lot of ways it can be difficult to rectify and accept the origin that Wolverine was given in origin for a lot of fans and origin too, maybe. Maybe, you know, Circus Logan isn't your thing. The art is spectacular, and especially with Kieran Gillen's return coming up, it maybe stands to reason to give it a look. Now, for as positive as I've been on the first two segments of Life of Wolverine, that's nothing compared to how effusive I am on this third segment, which sees such 
an enormous breadth of Logan's history covered that it almost feels like it, it's too much compared to the second issue, which felt so light. But the more I re-scroll through it, the more this is an expert understanding of how to use each moment in a way that creates a sense of drama. By contextualizing how much time is passing, by kind of reading the, the speed of the read, you know, kind of the speed of the scroll the way you might like, oh, okay, this has been eight pages of this issue. So I should imagine that this is eight pages of time by kind of gauging it that way and thinking about the amount of time of Logan's life that's covered by that second issue. This third issue gains a sort of sense of magnitude, a sort of impressive sense of how much time has passed. And it handles a lot of very tricky stories as best it can. Romulus is a complicated moment in Logan's mythos. He first appeared sort of in a slow crawl as a voice in Wolverine Origins, which was a follow-up series. So, okay, let's jump back a minute. So there's Wolverine Origin, right? And that's the the one that's like, I'm a little French-Canadian boy. You know, I don't have a French-Canadian accent. Really sorry, everybody. I'm so sorry. Sorry. And so then the second one is, hey, bub, I work at the circus, right? And that's that's origin two. And so then there's Wolverine Origins. And Origins is an ongoing title that ran 50 issues that was predominantly by Daniel Way that featured Logan trying to uncover the mysteries of his history after gaining some understanding of who he was as his shattered memories were repaired post-M Day when House of M was undone. So it's sort of a whole confusing thing, right? So there were some parallel Wolverine books running alongside each other, and that is something that we do mention in our coverage of Deaths of Wolverine number one, that it's happened before that there are parallel Wolverine books, right? It's also worth noting that this is the title that is sort of the significant entry point for Dokken into our universe, and it's definitely not the most beloved era for Dokken either. So if you're looking at Wolverine origins in terms of the bigger picture of Wolverine, it definitely dates itself by a lot of the characterization, but as this Infinite comic is showing us, there's very little of Logan's canon that they're not willing to at least dial into for a moment. Wolverine Origins by Daniel Way first introduced Romulus in Wolverine Origins 2 as just sort of a disembodied voice, and then in the pages of Wolverine Origins 5, there's a giant shadow of him. Now, a year later, in Wolverine Volume 3, number 53, in June 2007, Romulus would be named before before finally appearing in Wolverine Volume 355 in July. And, you know, he has so many powers and he's just so unbelievably kind of over the top in his over the toppery. And it goes to the heart of what version of the truth there is to believe. You're initially told that Romulus is like a super ancient creature and that it's all about this ancient battle between dog people and cat people. And, you know, you find out so much of what Romulus has been claiming is untrue that it makes it very difficult to understand exactly what the narrative they're hoping to tell is. It is certain that he was a member of the Weapon X program at one point and was also involved in the Black Ops program that birthed the Black Widow. So he has connections to Omega Red. He has connections to Wolverine. Romulus is certainly a character, though, that leaves fans very divided because the larger-than-life sort of soap opera kind of... 
hyperdramatic point he plays in Logan's history doesn't simplify anything and doesn't really seem to work to enhance anything either. In the time since, Jason Aaron has focused on different elements of Logan's history and certainly that was reflected in his long run on Wolverine, his run on Wolverine Weapon X, as well as his run on Wolverine and the X-Men. And in the time since, the other writers that have worked with Wolverine haven't seemed to want to spend too much time with Romulus either, though it does seem as though Ben Percy may be headed in that direction with Romulus having connections to Omega Red and Omega Red being such a central element of this storyline. It is very possible that we could be headed for such a thing. It's also of note that this segment does see the inclusion of Sabretooth and Logan's uh, sort of that eternal struggle that they're locked in, and this comes up a lot more in our future coverage of Victor Laval and Leonard Kirk's Sabretooth number one. Love him or hate him, and man, I really hope you hate him. Sabretooth really plays an important part in understanding the bigger picture of Wolverine's narrative and life of Wolverine, giving us that necessary element of sort of just the savagery that he plays in destroying Logan's happiness, really begins to paint the picture that flows so perfectly into Logan's time at war. But until we can get to Life of Wolverine number four, here's Death of Wolverine number one. We hope you guys enjoy. And if you guys like what you hear, don't forget, you'll probably like what you see, so give us a subscribe over on Twitter at X's for Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we investigate Wolverine's many deaths every single time he dies. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. What up, mi gente? It's Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. Hey guys, it's Jake. They, them. You can find me on Twitter at Sentinel. That's O-H Sentinel. Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Drewcifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S. S-I-P-H-E-R-3. And I am Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K, and we hope you survive this experience, just like Maura trying to survive Mystique hunting her down. Now, I am balls to the wall excited to talk about this issue. I know that I was critical of 10 Lives number one, but said I was very excited, and I believe the only person who was like, I am so ready for 10 deaths. Well, I mean, you know, Arturo, you were very positive on the whole experience, but Drew was like, no, I'm here for 10 deaths. And like, <laughs> so I'm so excited to have you both back with us. Jake and Jonah, I'm super excited to have you guys join us for this investigation of whether or not Wolverine is, I don't know if the death even matters to Wolverine anymore. We are here to talk about Deaths of Wolverine number one, written by Ben Percy, with art by Federico Vincenti, Diholima with Frank Martin, threw in colors, VCs Corey Pettit over on letter and design, with Tom Muller on overall design. The standard cover belongs to Adam Kubert with Frank Martin. However, there is a Plethora. shocking number of covers for the paper shortage. So I would love to get your guys' take on X Lives of Wolverine number one. How did you guys feel about the last issue leading into this one? Was, were you in the right frame of mind? Did you have what you know something going on in your mind in the first place? How did you feel coming into this? What I had going on in my mind was that these titles were one book. I thought it was just the way that the the logo was placed or whatever. I in the last you know last week's recording was like, wait, there's X deaths. So to say that this has all come like very 
unexpected is an understatement. Once we got started with Lives of Wolverine, I was like, okay, well, this is this is what this is kind of gonna be like, and let's see what Deaths is about. And I never imagined that this was gonna be the Trojan horse through which we would get a continuation of the Inferno plotline. And I could not be happier. Like this whole like Moira on the run, like shenanigans. I thought this was like a plot thread that we weren't gonna see picked up for i mean if you if you had told me Mo- moira was going to disappear from publication for two years and then show up with the Sentinel yeah i thought like something. next summer or something right yeah, yeah percent. Like, i saw like a big crossover in the distance yeah that's so, that boldness yeah, you and incredible. i are always saying we want yeah yeah i mean and it just for me it also feels very reassuring in the post tickman you know krakoa that you know one of the the older heads like percy that's been there since since uh the dawn of x is is running a big ball down the field like this the cold open is actually like what i saw the preview that i saw that's kind of what got me into it because i was i was interested in what was happening with the moira of it all and um like you guys said i also thought it was going to be another plot thread that was going to happen like you know years and years and years and years down the line so i was surprised that this that was the direction that this book was going to go in i thought it was going to be something a little bit more tiny wimey jumping yeah i just i love that this is a sneak moira book and i love that you know because since she was reintroduced in Hoxpox, I have just like drooled over every every scene she's in. I've just been like living for every bit of interiority we get from this, like now, you know, this this character with all of these new layers painted on. And, and it's not new for me because I've always really been interested in Moira McTaggart as a as a character. Like, you know, what is she doing there being the only human among all these mutants? Like, you know, helping cure the legacy virus, helping, you know, heal the, or helping treat the mutants after the mutant massacre. The retcon that was the, that was attached to her in Hawkspots really made her make so much more sense and so good to see what's going on in her head. So I read 10 Lives and I'm like, okay, that was a book. So then I get into this and I read this title and the title says uh, 10 Deaths of Wolverine. And I'm like, huh, that's going to be a lot of death for Wolverine. He's pretty sure he's had plenty more than 10. So I'm reading this and on the first few pages, I'm like, I don't see no Wolverine. And I continue reading this and I'm like, I still don't see any Wolverine. Same, same, same boy, same. Over and over. Same, same. And I'm like, what do you mean this book is called Ted Does a Wolverine and there ain't no Wolverine? So I keep reading and I keep going and I'm like, huh, Logan's nowhere to be found. Maybe he is just dead. And then I was like, oh, I still don't get why it's called Ted Does a Wolverine from this issue alone. But I was pleasantly surprised by everything of of how this issue is going to pick up from Inferno as well as Ten Lives of Wolverine, which I like being able to see something that's going on at the exact same moment as another title. And, you know, speaking of things going on in other titles, I I think my only disappointment maybe at all in the titling here, because the titling is cool and it's dynamic and I love the idea of centering it all around Logan, I guess I maybe feel like in a lot of ways Warlock and Cypher are sort of the stars of this show. I think that Mystique and Destiny should also be in the corner box. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. think Gene and frankly, love him, hate him, wish that you could push him down the stairs, but Xavier does have a place in this narrative. And I feel as though there's a really interesting perspective that Ben Percy brings, and it kind of is that Wolverine is the center of the universe. And I don't know that I would like that if he was writing a bunch of team books, but considering one of his books is Wolverine, I'm kind of okay with Wolverine being the most important person in Coldplay right now. And I really thought the open of this issue was dynamic and exciting by putting us in exactly where Inferno left off 
we continued the idea of sort of burning down the structure we expect. By no means do I see this as an end to Krakoa, but I certainly see this as an end to the sort of freedom that Moira has had the luxury of enjoying thus far. However, I do want to segue to one of our favorite on this team. There is, of course, an appearance from the gorgeous Black Tom himself on uh, the sequence that starts on digital page 11. <laughs> I could not speak highly enough about the work Ben Percy did on Black Tom. I know, Arturo, you have been a big fan since day one. Yeah, I gasped. I, I was like, wait, it says Wolverine on the cover. I'm knee deep in Moira shenanigans, and now I'm getting Black Tom. Like, I'm telling you, this was like a Russian nesting doll of joy for me. Until, you know, we see what happens to Black Tom. But I'm just happy to see him getting played. And, you know, like, if Wolverine as a title, as a name, you know, sells books and making a dozen and variants sells books and then once you get into the book wolverine is is a character but it's really a vehicle for for more storytelling and, and world building that for me is like the best way you could use wolverine that to me is so much more interesting than a solo book and i really mm -hmm. thought that this whole thing was going to center around wolverine in a way that you know there's a lot more people that i i'd rather have a story center around let's put it that way i love wolverine but he's not you know uh, some fascination or or anybody that I think deserves that much. But I get that he gets that much. I get that he sells. And I'm, again, just thrilled to see that this was so much more uh, of an ensemble book. I love that it was so much from Moira's perspective. So we've gone from Moira, the staunch ally, to Moira, the martyr, to Moira being deceased for, I don't know, 25 years or something of publication, to Moira, the queen of the biggest retcon possibly in, in comic history. And now we're in this new stage where it's like Moira on the run. And I like that it's not a straight pivot to evil diagnosed with cancer in this. Like she's facing her mortality. There's so much richness to this. Moira went from dying back in the 90s to where she's at right now to us reading this book. It's, it's crazy. I am over here ready to get my Irene was right t-shirt because I, you know, Moira is a character who now has or who like has a lot of gravity to her she was this existential threat in some ways i really like the idea that taking her power off the board frees mutant kind in a big way is mystique evil is destiny evil does destiny enable mystique to be more evil and i really i think that framing their actions as evil is inaccurate you know i think that you know if we see each member of the council as an agent for krakoa and try and view their actions as for krakoa then destiny and mystique did the absolute right thing in depowering moira and sending her on her way mystique's pursuit of moira makes a lot of sense the rage and anger that she's holding on to that moira would try and keep destiny from resurrecting this portrayal of mystique as a boogeyman but she's a boogeyman with a with good reason to be you know so angry and so so just like, I am going to kill you because you tried to keep me from my wife of 120 years or whatever. Such a bad bitch. A, a boogeyman with a banging body. And, you know, I think it's that breadth of character and that world of mutants that are repopulating the book that is in part why we are so celebrating the casts of this title being so rich and so full. Drew, I know that you've definitely been hanging on through the post-Hickman era and looking for, like, you know, big, exciting stories. How did you feel about the large number of characters that interplayed into the Logan narrative here? 
Yeah, I was super into it. And going back to your point, uh, I think Jonah, you said this, I didn't even notice that Wolverine was not in this issue until you just said it because I was so into like the story itself. And it just like kind of caught me off guard of how it went down. Well, that attention to detail is why we brought you here, baby. (laughs) (laughs) The Jane Foster-ness of it all. It makes perfect sense that, like, these two characters would meet because they have, like, so much in common. Like, right now, they both have, well, like, Moira has cancer, you know, and Jane did. They're both doctors. They've both had, like, higher power than, like, being just human. I just found that kind of, like, a cool kind of uh, meeting of people for this issue. It was, like, a perfect meeting. I agree. The parallel to Jane Foster is, uh, it's there. I think part of it can be a little tricky because I probably over-deify Jane Foster a little bit. She's a character (laughs) who's done very little wrong. Like, in terms of where you have to be like, oh, you know, but Jean Grey is still kind of a shitbag sometimes. But, like, it's really hard to find shitbag moments for Jane Foster. Even You know, Jean's my favorite. Jane's, like, number two. And I make no bones about that on this show, how obsessed (laughs) I am with Jane Foster. Uh, This appearance was one of the things that continues to prove my point about Aaron meets Percy magic. Like, Jason Aaron and Ben Percy like to follow a lot of the same story beats. They like to connect things about Avengers to things about X-Force with vampires running around both narratives at the same time, making references to each other. So this felt really good. And the truth of it is, Moira pulled a very smart, shitty move. And it was very smart and real shitty. Because at the end of the day, Jane Foster is a doctor. And she will do no harm. She can even know what Moira has done. But Jane Foster is a doctor, and she will take care of her patient, and she will do what is necessary to to see that through. And I think that's even kind of the point of this. This is, Moira is so good at using people, she even knows, whereas Cecilia Reyes would knock her unconscious and then, you know, drag her body somewhere. Jane Foster's a little bit more by the rules. Yes, she is. There is somebody whose reaction to everything I would love to know. I would love to know Sean Cassidy's reaction to everything. He and oh my God, for a right? very long time had a very interesting romantic relationship and partnership that I do wonder how Sean is reacting to any of this news that he is or isn't privy to. Plus his closeness with Emma. It's like a double whammy. Uh, Yes. Yes. I would love if some writers would like, could bring him into it because it it personally makes sense even if for a brief moment in an issue, Sean has played a big viral role in Moira's life and to find this information about Moira changes the perspective of their relationship so much that I think really them having some a closure moment of talking about it probably would be really interesting and cool. Jane Foster is quite literally a very amazing human being as well as a great Valkyrie. I honestly was not expecting to see her in this title at all when it comes to x-men unless the people are on the cover i don't expect anybody who's not an x-men to make an appearance except wolverine (laughs) except wolverine also not this book this is the one (laughs) hey no he's there he's laying down and then um you know another wolverine comes up and this time it's not laura and it's not gabby and it's not (laughs) dokken it's another wolverine 
But Jane being here, it again goes through that this is a big through line, you know. Uh, hopefully our listeners uh, were listening and reading along with us with Jane Foster Valkyrie run that was really interesting and really cool to read and brought about a lot of really um, unique ideas and themes to her own, to her story to help differentiate her from previous Valkyries, to dis- differentiate herself from Jane Foster as Thor. There were a lot of cool things in that story and to see her here, mwah, chef's kiss. I want to add a layer because there's actually a Valkyrie story you didn't read where death is dying because of the things that the Krakoans are doing. Like, the embodiment of death is broken because no one will stay dead anymore. And Valkyrie is charged to be one of the people to help fix it. So she's actually in on the whole Krakoan thing. So using her is even more perfect because she literally had to help repair death because of all the things the Krakoans are doing, as well as other forces that just won't stay dead. But like the Krakoans constantly bringing people back is definitely a big deal. Death is such a whiner. Right, and Thanos is like, I just love the way she nags me. I don't well, it's like, get it. Come on, there's like a million mutants who died. Okay, like compared to like the billions and billions of people who are staying dead, like let them have this. Right? Ugh, some mutants are only good at being dead. So like, <laughs> okay, so Sean is entitled to have his whole reaction to the Moira thing. Absolutely. The other thing is, as readers having seen Moira's journal entries. We know that she had this tendency to seek out people of particular genomes because she was trying to breed powerful mutants. She sought out Joe McTaggart so that she could make Proteus. She pointed X to Gabby Holler, presumably, so that they could make Legion. What was she doing with Sean Cassidy? Well, Siren can host the Morrigan. So maybe... I, absolutely. I mean, like, I think that there's the genetic potential. Moira is continually, like, she, first of all, she's always going to towards powerful mutants. She's always like, this is this is the one I'm clinging to now. You know, she does that with Sean for years, but she never seems to try and have a baby with him. And I'm wondering if it's, I have a lot of questions about their relationship and if her feelings for him were genuinely affectionate or if she was just kind of trying to, like, you know, get that, get that mutant double helix going. Or get that hot ginge just to help pass the time. That phalanx covenant banshee was a snack. Once Moira makes her fantastic escape, I don't know. Moira looking like Tabby is like a lot of look, but I kind of love Honestly, that they kept her eyebrows. Having her the Karen right Grant moment. I thought she looked like Abigail Brand, but blonde. I'm curious to know what is what this warlock arm prosthetic is. What role that's going to play? Like, is is Doug listening in on all this? Is is warlock aware that any of this is happening? Can they locate her easily? Like, it's just a big piece of technology that she's running around with. And and I'm also concerned with what Moira will be able to do with it. Right? Like, is that is that going to lead to her? You know, I don't know, contacting the phalanx or something. Yeah, it's the second, like, foreign virus that's been in her. She had the legacy virus at the end of her golem status, and she has the techno-organic mesh on her now, and it's a foreign body, and it's, this is a, you know, this is, Moira is always in danger, girl. Well, it definitely feels like we're circulating the phalanx techno-organicness storyline, you know, because you've got Cable just, you know, messed up his arm and sword so that it's all techno-organic. You've got Doug and Warlock, you know, really stepping up their leadership and machinations, and you've got Moira with his arm now. You've got, you know, whoever this Wolverine is going around with techno-organic mesh, and you know that there is, like, this ever-present 
present phalanx threat sort of on the the, the far edges of this whole story is this all a thread tying that, that weaves through that's that's what i'm really curious about i would love to see that so my guess for this wolverine because i i can't stop thinking about him and i love the design so much i think they broke a rule and i think this is a wolverine egg with current wolverine's brain in it given techno-organic mesh so that he can track and fight moira without giving it to real wolverine i feel like this is logan like it's just somehow not logan and that's why logan is asleep in the bed like i think logan's consciousness is a bunch of places right now and that's why it has to be logan because he's fractured anyway to what end though can you can you like why would they who I mean, would but send why him? any of this why are we going back through time to stop omega red from killing little chuckies and like I, I kind of feel like we're gonna get all the pieces together but for some reason we have wolverine in the past while he's asleep and now there's another wolverine running around chasing moira and it just sort of feels to me like they really are just embracing that wolverine is a different person and a different place each week and they're just making an event out of it like they're just deconstructing logan and it makes me kind of think of the fact that in this regard they're almost treating krakoa they're almost treating krakoa and Wolverine's bodies like Iron Man suits. And they kind of do that for all mutants now, where it's like, oh no, your body broke, we'll get you a new one, we'll just put you in it. But like, if they're really just having one Logan via Gene and Charles, like operate a bunch of Logan suits, I'm really fascinated by this. I have no idea who this Wolverine is. I got a Wolverine from... (laughs) (laughs) I got like a Wolverine sent from the future, sent back in time. I mean, I'm basing that off of absolutely nothing other than his like technarchy kind of... And your own ability to time travel. Details. I like that theory though, that maybe they corrupted an egg. That's kind of cool. Oh, speaking of the time travel component, like where is Rachel? Because she's the one who can do that, right? She's the one who can send people's minds back in time and gene is not the one who can do that my thought is if rachel can do it then perhaps it's a latent gene that gene has and through the constant uh rebirthing 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 she has it activated if everybody else is getting cool powers why not gene I just really, this would have been, it would, it's such a good opportunity for a Days of Future Past callback moment of like, you know, I would love to just see Rachel sitting like cross-legged with Logan's head in her lap, sending his consciousness back. And do we think that's a contemporary Wolverine with, like contemporary to his era with, with our era's Wolverine's consciousness back in his skull? Like, is it straight up a Days of Future Past scenario? I think it kind of should be because mm-hmm. of the ages. That's like really the only benefit. Like, otherwise, if you're sending Sending somebody through time with a specific mission that no one can die, you send Bishop. So sending back Logan, there really had to be a compelling reason in-universe, other than it's just, you know, it's Logan's book. Like, you needed a reason for it to make sense there, and I think using legit rules of Rachel Gray chrono-skimming from, you know, Days of Future Past, I think that's the best jump I can make. I fully agree with you that Rachel should be in this mix. I'm rolling with it. Like, I continue to just vibe with the 
this story that Percy's writing. I feel excited. It's not what I expected. I'm also kind of grateful that other titles have been put on pause. Agreed. It's a nice change of pace from where we were just a couple of months ago when it was like, so wait, is Trial happening before Inferno or after Inferno? And how far from the gala are we? And like th we were, there was a little bit of uh, event clusterfuck happening. And this just feels like, uh, like I've got room to breathe. Like we're going to be getting weekly. We're going to be moving the story, but it's a little easier to focus on. It just sort of seems like there's a little bit more breathing room, fewer issues. They're all a little bit longer. And I'm really okay with that trade-off, especially because it does feel like right now is a good reset minute. Take a breath, take stock of what's going on, because so many things are sort of cross-happening in a way that I think people are losing track of. For instance, for all we know, X-Men Unlimited really is canon. So those things really should be translating back into our monthly titles. So if you're not reading the weekly drops of Unlimited or the every 10 days or whatever they are, then you might be missing out. And while, yes, the first four are being adapted into Latitude, I do not know that I believe that the full 20-issue run is going to be adapted. And it's just sort of a really interesting thing. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I 100% feel like I'm being coerced into reading a Wolverine story. And it does take coercion because it's not my first place. It's not the first place I'd go in the X world. But because there's all this breathing room and because the story has clearly rooted itself in the greater Krakoa goings on, they've really, I mean, they've hooked me into it. Like, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to turn away from it. So very, very smart integration on their part. Plus, it's just a fun experiment the like weekly release format so you know it's it's more fun than i expected and you say coerced but it's almost like you're like being tricked <laughs> into reading it, like <laughs> it's why the x is the first letter oh my god <laughs> <laughs> like this is an x book really the discussion that X-Men and Devil's Reign do feel like their own thing in a lot of ways is a pretty constant discussion on this show in terms of how the line is reactive. And we'd had a lot of expectations for a really long time that it seemed as though perhaps Jerry Dugan was being primed to sort of take on a John Hickman role. However, I think we're also perhaps seeing an extreme advancement of Ben Percy's unique take on the Marvel Universe and his X role in particular by giving him the direct follow-up to Moira, it does really feel like this is sort of its own thing. And putting Wolverine on it, I really think might have been a disservice. Just the title, because there are so many incredible characters here again. It really is the kind of book that needs a little bit more celebration, and I wonder if it's not getting its due. So what would you have called it then? You know, I think the first thing is I wouldn't have called Inferno Inferno. So I would totally have, agree. I would mm -hmm. have probably just made Inferno four more issues of John Hickman's X-Men, 22, 23, 24, 25, and ended it in a way that kind of befit the fact that it was just an ending. It was a great ending, but it was just an ending. And the beginning was so much more than just a beginning. So I would have maybe treated Inferno less like it was the only thing that mattered, sort of devaluing other books around it, which is no fault of anybody, but the presentation of the way we received the marketing, that's all. And I, from there, definitely would have treated like the previous story as like Origin 3, like 10 Lives of Wolverine just feels like Origin 3 at the moment, and that's fine. I think this needs to be some sort of Krakoa event. Like, this is really exciting, and to see Moira continue here, 
I, I would have given it an event title. W is for W men. I don't know. I guess I was about to put Wolverine in it because it's so intrinsically linked to him now already by having his name there. But like, I would make this an event. This is so fun. And Percy's doing a great job. And I just wonder if people's perception of who Logan is and what he'll do to a story is preventing people from reading what is really the most exciting read I've had from the X office in quite a while. I think if you're in and if you've been following X-Men, you're following this. It's, I don't think this is a, you know, this is like a, a deal breaker for people. Like it, it does feel like this is just, there's some books, this is what I was trying to say earlier. There's some books that feel like they are their own thing within Krakoa, right? Like X-Factor was very that, Hellions is very that, uh, Excalibur is very that. Um, then there's other stories and beats that feel like they are just a continuation of, you know, X-Men colon Krakoa. Mm-hmm. And that's what this felt like. Like, and it just felt like a surprise. Like, oh, I didn't think this was going to be this big pivotal, you know, moving moving Krakoa forward story. Yet here we are. So I think it's a it's a bait and switch in a good way where it completely subverted my expectations and made me so happy. Whereas if I am really here for Wolverine and that's like my jam, then you know, maybe I would have been like, What the fuck? Why is this called why is Wolverine in the title and he's not in it? But where I'm at personally, I'm I couldn't be happier about that. I will say my only note would be that a bunch of people said they weren't reading these because they're called Wolverine and afterward messaged me to be like, Hey, can I change my decision? I wasn't gonna buy it because it's Wolverine and then I heard people talk about it. If I had known it was an X Men event, I would have picked it up all along. That's so and like that's great. That's like that's like literally the message I'm getting. And I'm like, yeah, people just thought this was a Wolverine book. They just thought this was Wolverine 20. Like, did they really think Marvel would have three different solo Wolverine titles running around? And the answer to that is very likely yes. yes. Yeah, there was I mean, a period of time where they had Wolverine, Wolverine Origins, and Savage Wolverine. Wolverine focused on Wolverine stories. Wolverine Origins focused on his past and Romulus. And uh, Wolverine, uh, Savage Wolverine was so creators could come in and tell their own stories. And then when they moved toward Wolverine Family and Death of Wolverine, it became Wolverine, Dark Wolverine, and X-23. It really makes you like think about what Mar- Marvel's internal marketing looks like. Like, how, <laughs> how are these conversations happening? Like, uh, like, like, seriously, though, I mean, you've got these two Wolverine titles that aren't quite Wolverine titles. You've got the death part. And, you know, there's like Death of Doctor Strange, Death of... I wonder what, like, what Death of is testing like in the marketing polls right now. Like, are people really responding to titles? that have death in them like like the way they responded to titles that have secret and war in them like I, I'm very, I think, I think the, it's very interesting. I think the world's becoming a little more nihilistic as, yeah. as the time goes on. So, you know, cash in while you can with words like death, war. <laughs> so I'm very, very excited that my concern about lives of Wolverine turned out to be pretty unfounded. I'm really excited to have Arturo and Drew back to give their expectations of where the series might be going going forward yet again, because it's really kind of fun to have consistency to kind of compare the the sort of evolution of the story going forward. But I would also love to get everybody's reaction to the issue and where they hope that the story goes forward from here. I myself think positioning Jane Valkyrie, Jane Valkyrie, I have to go. I myself think positioning Jane Foster, the Valkyrie, to be here tells us that, yeah, there's going to be a significant death. 
Jane Foster isn't the only very good doctor in the Marvel Universe. Someone's going to die. The Valkyrie is here. So I'm thinking a little, you know, the gun is Chekhovian. Everybody look out for the Chekhovian bullets. Someone's getting shot, you know? So that's where my head's at. Isn't that the guy who wrote the Nutcracker Suite? Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's, you are, you are, you are too cute. I really appreciate the use of Black Tom here. I think Black Tom as a character has been criminally underused in this current era of X-Men specifically because he's a guy who talks to plants when you're that fabulous and your boyfriend is that humongous. But regardless of that, I did appreciate him being here and what the role that he did serve. Granted, he did kind of die, and that's okay. You can have characters die, especially in Krakoa, where death doesn't really mean anything. I did appreciate utilizing this character that had promise, especially in X-Force, and then was just kind of sent to the wayside. I was just really happy with the concurrent timeline that this issue is telling while Wolverine is being chronos to the past to go save Chuck and seeing secret agent Moira on the run in her blonde hair and glasses where she looks like a number of different X characters I was I'm really fascinated to see will Moira ever escape or is Mystique always going to be able to hunt her down kind of like the movie It Follows Mystique pulling her trick like Mystique shape-shifting and surprise bitch it's me and then trying to kill you is just something that never gets old. No. 1,000. No, if this whole series is just Mystique chasing Moira through every title and and book out there, like, sign me up. I've dropped all expectations for this. I'm just vibing. I'm enjoying it. I don't think this is going to be the end of Krakoa. I don't think this is going to be the beginning of the Technarchy invasion or anything. I think Logan is just set to go find Moira and match her fabulousness with his fabulousness now that they have matching light-up glow stick arms. I have no idea where this series is going. We've all said that they can literally go in a number of different directions. Really, who knows? In my head, I'm remembering Destiny saying that Moira would have 10, maybe 11 lives if she played her cards right. Moira has cancer. She's been depowered. She's being chased down. You know, one of the big questions I have is, can she resurrect on Krakoa? And what happens if she does? And just like additionally, I'm, I'm very excited and very curious to see what this book means for the next step of Krakoa. You know, is Moira going to join the CIA? Is she going to go join Orcus? Because that would be a fascinating turn. If I have a hope, it's that right there. I'm right there with you. Because like, even when we accepted the retcon and kind of sanctified Moira and elevated her, there was still this weirdness. So I, I think it would be a, a logical progression. Or if she decides to sidestep Orcus all and you know all together and just make a beeline for for the technarch or the failing or whatever we're you know I love the options you guys gave because it led me to a, a place I would love to see yeah you know what I would love to see her turn to Orcus and I would love to see her at the height of her Orcus power I would love to see some X Factor loving like X Factor like the unknown variable uh, loving mutant repower her so Orcus won't want her anymore no per my action figures that's exactly where she's at I have more with a robot arm standing next to Bastion, next to Omega Sentinel, next to the Sentinel with the three heads, and I have a blonde Sentinel-headed woman's head on top of M Moira's other body, and I'm calling her Valerie Cooper. I'll share a picture of this in the chat. No, but I like I, I there, uh, yeah, they. I've got uh, the whole Sentinel hierarchy here, except Nimrod. That I'm no trying. No to... Gyric anymore, huh? Well, we don't have oh. his figure. Oh yeah, that's true though. But we could always get his figure dip it in blue and inflate it a little bit 
Just a little red running from the eyes, too. Oh, obviously, I want an action figure of this Logan. I love him. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't need to. It's just one panel, but I love it. They'll I'm do it. I'm very simple like that. They will do it. Thank you. Hey everybody, Nico here. I couldn't be more excited than to introduce this next segment. Ecstatics has long been a favorite title of mine, and this opportunity to come back to these amazing characters time and time again in the pages of Dead Girl, in the pages of All New Dupe, seeing Dupe appear all over the Marvel Universe, and things like My Mute Heart or Wolverine and the X-Men, those have all been so rewarding. Dead Girl's appearances in things like Strange Academy have been fantastic, but nothing could possibly compare to getting this creative team back on a title like this further evolving the discourse on what exactly mutant fame culture would be. As we love making this show for you three times a week, every week, Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays. So until next time, when we bring you that Marvel Fanfare goodness, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. We hope you enjoyed the amount of Weapon X that was in this episode. Wolverine, dupe, there was a lot going on here. And until next time, we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast for a very special episode where we get to take a look at Marvel's most magnificent television stars. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram celebrating this monumental release at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me online floating along with my little camera, taking it all in, making little movies for everybody on Twitter at Dazzler AOA. And I'm TK. You can find me calling my agent on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. Hey, I'm Jake. They, them. You can find me saying silly things about X stuff over on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. O-H Mega Sentinel. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike a whole host of characters like Anarchist, You Go Girl, Fat, and a whole bunch of other unnamed dead ecstatic characters. Audiences love a high body count. They do. This is one of those books that is so well-named because Ecstatics really does express how this title line makes me feel. Now, we're here today to specifically talk about The Excellent, but it's kind of hard to talk about The Excellent, number one, without also mentioning a little bit about Ecstatics' giant size release from 2019. Now, they have, amazingly, the same creative credits for the most part, both written by Pete Milligan, with art by Michael Doc Alred, with colors by Laura Alred, and, as always, when it, it happens, it has to be noted that the letters on this title are by Nate Picos of Blambot Studios, while a majority of Marvel's work is handled in-house by VC's virtual calligraphy team. This is Blambot. Blambot, probably a little bit better known for some of their work on the Marvel Unlimited Infinite comics, working with the production team of Annie Chang and Tom Smith III. So it's always amazing to see another team get some credits on a title that is just so fucking good. Okay, so this is like my favorite book ever. Like, Ecstatic Sex, like, it's just my thing, right? And it has my terrible sense of humor, and <laughs> I am obsessively in love with Dead Girl. She's like my number one, like, she's like Jean Grey levels for me. People know this. It's like a thing that comes up a lot. And uh, Mr. Sensitive is like, my, he's like all I've ever wanted to be in life. And not that there's ever a bad ecstatics teleporter. There are no bad ecstatics teleporters. And I'll fight anybody who thinks there are. But like Venus DeMilo is hands down my girl. I 
I think the love world her. I there isn't a and dupe like I have almost every piece of authentic dupe merchandise ever made and like it is it's, a, five it's, pieces. Thing for me. Uh, it's like eleven okay because oh. <laughs> there's like a hero clicks of dupe on a motorcycle with a tiger and Jonah got it for me so Aww. wow okay. I can't talk enough about how happy this book makes me and how it actually takes me to a zeitgeist in my life. Speaking of zeitgeist. <laughs> so I'm one of those people, like, at first when this came out, I, I absolutely hated it at first. Like, because I was so into that Counter X X-Force line that came out. Oh, I, I was, loved it so much, Pete Wisdom. Uh, I was like, where the fuck did Pete Wisdom go? I was like, how am I going to find out why Warpath can fly now suddenly? Like, <laughs> like, I was just rage quit the series. Like, and I didn't come back to trying to read ecstatics until after i met you nico and you're like it's so great and i'm like okay fine let me give it a shot again and holy fuck it's so great like the humor just like the the level of social commentary in it like that amazing team of mike and laura like holy hell like they are just so good together and they have such a distinctive feel in every single thing they do they're better than burton ernie the characters the tragic wanton deaths and like everything sign me the fuck up so when giant size ecstatic came out i was like holy shit i gotta pick this up because they were so fucking amazing and i love the story that it's brought and where the story seems to be going and you never like the thing i love about ecstatics and excellent is you can never really tell where the story is gonna go like nobody's fucking safe it's like the walking dead and comic book world but like the walking dead comic is a comic but it's like the walking dead of the marvel universe I really, that's, it's like Walking Dead, but for comics, is our new tagline. It's like an X-Men podcast, but for podcasts. And like, it's... So I was in high school, I think, when the X-Force converted to X-Force. It was like July 2001, and I was too young to really, like, get it all. You know, clearly written and drawn and colored by people who know and love the superhero medium enough that they can, like, take it and break it and play with all the pieces and reassemble it as something like very strange and interesting and powerful, like really heavy hitting, even as it's like funny and absurd, like a foil to all the seriousness happening in mainline X books. Cause this was coming out parallel to Grant Morrison's new X-Men. Which I, I love that you make it parallel to Grant Morrison's new X-Men because that elevates it. Cause you could also say parallel to Chuck Austin's <laughs> X-Men. It is parallel to that too. I mean, I mean like that was also, I mean, it's a striking contrast to the other books of the line because it's so much brighter, like both like just the way it looks, it's brighter, it's sillier, but it's still telling like a really interesting story. You know, I'm really compelled as a, you know, as a 36 year old now at how the start of this story and it's like continuation straddles nine 11, how it really, was commenting on the explosion of like reality TV. You know, I mean, it's just such a smart book. It's interesting to me how it's this distorted reflection of Xavier's assimilationist dream, you know, human and mutant coexistence, but the existence part, the survival part for the mutants was attaining celebrity as the means of protecting themselves instead of like, you know, just showing up and doing good deeds. It was so predictive of the direction that media culture went. Giant Size Ecstatics was really playing with a lot of like contemporary superhero themes too, like legacy characters, resurrection, how mutant solidarity does and doesn't work with different kinds of groups. The excellent and this giant 
guys I spoke are so good for this moment. So for me, I had mostly quit the X-Men prior to this. I really quit X-Force. I was not a fan. I was kind of finding other comic sources of inspiration. And I love the art of Roy Lichtenstein. And when I saw Ecstatics, immediately I recognized that sort of pop art reference that All Red was doing. And I had to have it. But I had been out of the X-Line for so long that I was really, really confused. And so it became this kind of fever dream. I had no idea what I was reading. Like, there's just tiny little references to Professor Xavier in there from The Orphan slash Mr. Sensitive. And I was like, okay, this is this is somewhere in there. X-Force shows up at one point early on, but it's like the way it connects to mainline continuity is just really unclear in ways that I love. And I actually read a lot of this before checking out Morrison's run. I read The Invisibles and then start realized that like I needed to read Morrison's run. I always have to say that after you finish The Invisibles, you just need to start New X-Men immediately and think of it as volume. Totally agreed. Yep. And it really does enhance Morrison's new X-Men to read the Invisibles beforehand. But also, I think, you know, Jake's absolutely right. This is an amazing contrast to Morrison's run. And we joke, but in a lot of ways, it's also important to contrast it to the Austin run. Like, this is a contained moment in X history, but it is one that is so important for contextualizing that entire time, the early 2000s. And what's really exciting about Giant Size and The Excellent is I think they're going to play a really similar role in contrasting and reflecting what we're looking at in the Krakoan era. A little peek into what it's like dating Nico. Very early on when we first met, you know, we talked about a lot of different topics and in that early stages of getting to know one another. So I meet Nico for the first time and I wish I was kidding. I come here and he's like, okay, so here's some things you need to know about me. And he pulls out this giant ecstatic book and he goes, this is my life. These characters, yeah. these characters are my life. Yeah, are my, my everything. Yeah, they're my friends. And so I've known basically everything that you need to know with going into ecstatics without ever actually having to read it because these characters are so vital and important to Nico. I uh, did a little bit of research of like who's who, who like Mr. Sensitive, Vivisector, all these characters. I was trying to just get familiar of like, okay, they're there. I know that they're mutants and they do things, but like what exactly do they do and going into this when this title was on the solicits and you know you hear about this getting promoted and this is upcoming i was like oh boy nico's gonna pee his pants he's gonna be so excited and i was really excited to get to read something of this title that's so important to nico while also being able to start from what seems like a good starting point for people who didn't read the original run or haven't gone back to go read it the between giant size and excited i think that excellent excellent not a excited that's a different title <laughs> i got the you X -Men. I got that's the after dark title yeah <laughs> <laughs> i want to see after those tans. Check, <laughs> check back next week when we when we cover excited which is the only fan subscriptions of all of the and era people <laughs> uh, it's a lot of mr sensitive shyly looking emotional behind a sheet <laughs> <laughs> I was very excited going into this, even though these characters aren't as familiar to me as other characters who have reached the uh, cultural zeitgeist. But I do, I am fascinated to see that Zeitgeist is now a villain. And we have characters like Mirror Girl 
and what is his name? Rude Johnny? <laughs> Hurt John. Hurt John. Hurt John. Joe, Joe Bomb. I was, uh, my, it shiggled me timbers, and I want to say why, that Dupe was barely in either issue. The most powerful way to use a character is frequently by not using them, and Dupe literally became a Marvel superstar. The character does have caveat that he carries, and I think nothing celebrated him better in a big way than his inclusion in Wolverine and the X-Men. I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> number, number 17, of course, you know, that famous cover. And from there, we saw the rise of Dupe in the pages of all new Dupe. And he's had quite a quite a roller coaster. But Dupe being the most well-known member of Ecstatics, barely being in this, how did that read for you guys? It was Jake and uh, TK. You guys both had the point about She-Hulk, where she contains a multitude and a mirth that makes her very different from comparing her to X-Men versus the Fantastic Four, Jake, which I believe you had said was your first She-Hulk ever. And then seeing her in this book, where it's a little bit different, uh, her own book, not this book. Uh, sadly, She-Hulk is not in this book. Give it um, time. <laughs> that like she would frequently break the fourth wall, and then in other titles, she wouldn't. And I sort of feel like that's what's happening with Dupe here. In his other appearances out in the world, he carries machine guns, and he's just kind of like, I'm duping, I'm shooting. But like here, he's bringing in characters without any notice. <laughs> like... I mean, I think Dupe starting right now is kind of a promise. He's got to be there. Of course he has to be there. We need to lay some groundwork with the characters and not focus too much on the one who is a superstar and who has been a really consistent, well, consistent's not the right word, but he's been a regular presence in X continuity for a while. I feel like if this goes on for a significant amount of time, we're going to get some really incredible dupe moments, but I appreciated the step back from him for a minute to play around with some other stuff because I feel like there would be a temptation to make it the dupe show and we would all get really into that and it'd be probably incredibly funny but we've got some groundwork to lay in these two issues especially Marilyn Milliken's the dupe show is my new favorite music video from the 90s yeah, yeah. yeah exactly I couldn't agree more TK in the quick rereading that I was doing of X-Force and Ecstatics dupe's sort of intervention on the team is like you, you see him doing stuff few and far between but when he does when like someone talks to him and he speaks back and you can't understand what he's saying and then everyone laughs there's just a few of those moments but they really hit there was like a b story where dupe like has to take out a potential new x-force member to see if his mutation makes him unstable and it does and dupe ends up axe murdering him and burying him <laughs> And it's like, it's all happening in the sort of, in the background of another story. I think bringing Dupe any closer in this book risks using him too much, risks making him the Wolverine of the ecstatic school. Is Dupe really the superstar or is it really Dead Girl? Dead Girl got her own mini. Dead Girl more consistently pops up now with more substantial roles. And Dead Girl really seems to have, outside of the excellent ecstatic universe, seems to have more consistent characterization in line with her real character in the excellent ecstatics um, kind of line. So I think if we're talking about popularity, I think there are two kinds of different popularity. There's in our, you know, real world, real 
uh, popularity of how these characters are perceived, how well liked they are, and that's generally done through how many times you'll see them in other issues, all of the things that you're bringing up, Nathan, that Dead Girl has more solo series, more appearances elsewhere, more characterization that can be bridged through different appearances and different titles and interactions in the Marvel Universe. However, there's also in-universe popularity where writers and storytellers are telling us these characters hold a certain weight within the Marvel population of the 616 Earth at large. So I think Dead Girl and Dupe represent two different kinds of popularity where Dead Girl might test better with readers as well as people might enjoy her characterization the story that was brought for her forward as well as bridging that with other characters because it's easy to, I think, have her interact with a lot of characters because she's Dead Girl. A lot of characters die and a lot of characters deal with death. It's really easy to bring a character like that into so many different titles. Hell, she's an, uh, a teacher slash alumni mm-hmm. on... In Strange Academy. Academy. Yep. Thinking about the role in universe of like media presence and popularity, you know, given that Dead Girl is such a breakout character and, and occupies space in these other corners, does that in turn reflect on how big she's going to be in this book? Like, is she gonna is she gonna be the breakout star, or is she gonna like have greater standing with ecstatics because of that? And is that gonna be recognized in the story? I'm really curious to see that because I, th- I I completely agree with you that like she's so much more popular in the in the marvel universe now well aren't dupe and dead girl pretty much playing a very similar role in the books right now yeah they're both showing up and they're both like moving the story along they're maybe not taking the focus but they're both being that character that either brings in new people or you know really is that bridge if i may to riff on that because i agree i kind of feel like it's sort of like dead girl is johnny carson and dupe is joan rivers like that's they're of equal standing even if the universe doesn't see it that way I think that Um, is an apt metaphor. Dead Girl seems to be the director as well as directly influencing where the story is going by having these characters act in a certain way or telling them this is what you're supposed to be doing. Dupe is playing the the producer role where he's a little bit more behind the scenes, but he's the one kind of gathering everything they need as well as I think pulling a lot more strings than we're really seeing. Oh, surely he's pulling a lot more strings than we're seeing. And I think this is the best place. Talking about strings being pulled, Giant Size Ecstatics, when I first saw it solicited, I was convinced it was one of those, I did too much salvia again, and (laughs) I could not believe that Giant Size Ecstatics was solicited. It felt like one of those things where like, it it felt like it was for my fandom and my fandom only. There's times where I feel like, I, I used to say over and over again that I think that the best musical adaptation possible would be the Muppets doing Sweeney Frog, and it would be Kermit going, at last, my right flipper is complete again! And then you would have Miss Piggy as Mrs. Lovett. Wait, what's a rush? Like, it would be perfect. Like, it would be exactly right. You would have Sam Eagle as Judge Turpin. And I have long said, this couldn't exist for anybody but me. You know, Gonzo doing I Feel You, Camilla. Like, and then I one day go on Tumblr, and it's all there. (laughs) Someone drew all of this. And I, I mean, I just sat on the floor. Like, what do you even do? I dissociated. I just kind of started humming part of your world and rocking. It was an epic moment in my life. And that's the experience I had when Giant Size Ecstatics number one was solicited. Uh, once again, it felt like something that could only exist for me that was a shared moment. Like, because I think that's the best part. When something that only exists for you actually exists for everybody. And you realize in that moment, you're more connected to people through that. How did you 
you guys feel about giant size ecstatics? As a whole, I would have to say it really did a great job of setting up the new story that we're getting into now. I think it did a great job of introducing the main protagonist, the excellent. I really think it just, um, you know, I mean, the antagonist, the excellent. Um, I think it really set in motion the story that we're seeing now. And with giant size ecstatic and excellent, like, you do have to read them together because if you just read the last part of ecstatics you're not going to know what's going on when you read excellent if you don't have that bridge of giant size ecstatic and you're going to be like wait how did Edie get back why are they calling her katie but like with that it's like the perfect piece to set up a new story to set up these new legacy characters and why they look so much like the old characters that we love yeah i loved the idea that this is kind of you know the next generation (laughs) keeps itself in this ecstatics pocket universe within the X-Men continuity, like we've said a couple of times, you're never sure how much this is related to other stuff. If the X-Men are sitting on Krakoa watching the show being like, what the fuck? The mix of old and new characters gets you excited about the fact that like I'm back in an ecstatics book, but I'm getting all of this reference to stuff that's previously happened and setting it up in a way that really says like, we're back. We're going forward now. Like we've got the stories to tell also saying like dupe is a promise. Giant size is, is a promise that like, there is still so much here to dig into and it hits the ground running with that. I didn't really know the original characters. My very nice surprise was to find out that vivisexual. Nope, I almost said vivisexual. Vivisector yes! is a practicing homosexual. <laughs> oh, practicing miles, homosexual. miles, miles, miles. So that was my big bonus surprise of reading that. But what I like about it is I actually find it interesting that we're going with some uh, characters that are children of previous ecstatic members. There's a treasure trove of storytelling you can do when you have that form of legacy, especially when you give the kids the exact same power set. So I was very interested and excited to see where they were going to go with everything. But I do have to confess, every time I read You Go Girl's name, I always, in my head, finish it as You Go Girl, Give Us Nothing. And... (laughs) Edie would have been so here for that. Oh my god. What I think this giant size did was giving everybody who didn't have it the information they needed to understand not only who these characters are, the role that they played in their pre- in the previous run of Ecstatic, but the role that their children are going to be filling, but not quite being the same person, and what that means for them. Like, personally, I'm very interested to see where Fatty goes. <laughs> Something about her just speaks like winter energy so that's what i'm really hoping for is a lot more storytelling of these younger characters not only interacting with the metaphorical ghosts of their past and parents but also the physical ghosts because dead girl apparently will buy them tickets of approximately four minutes but you know there are sometimes glitches in that so jake how did it feel dialing back into this era i know you're a big you go girl fan so this had to be a kind of a bitter sweet moment i would imagine i have a love-hate relationship with the idea of legacy heroes but i love the play on the legacy hero thing that ecstatics is doing because like almost everyone now is a legacy hero of some kind between yugo girl and fatty and the a half the team are children of the original team with the same powers like you said like you said jonah and and that's such a a thing happening right now because comics in in marvel especially because these comics have been going on for so long they're you know iterational generations happening you've got two wolverines and a 
and a honey badger. I love that this is really pulling on that thread and showing us, giving us another way to kind of explore legacy heroes, but it, you know, with uh, with that kind of absurdist take that uh, the ecstatics corner of, of the universe has. The other thing I really loved about this giant size was that it follows a lot of the beats of like the classic hero's journey. You've got Katie sitting at home in her like mild mannered like bedroom. She rejects the call to heroism initially when she has her encounter with her parent, but eventually the power is kind of thrust upon her and she has to like embrace it or die. It's, it's an easy storyline to glom onto and a great way to slide back into the ecstatics world. And that really does bring me to a moment in time, right? And now you know, I don't mean the follow-up to, what was it? Like, I can't remember. Like, all of the, uh, those Spider-Man minis and events that uh, reset one everything. Day, one more day. They all had titles, like, like, Miz songs. <laughs> one day more. Like, it's all I can, like, think, you know? Um, and it gets, like, really fucking stuck. I'm like, at what point did Spider-Man get beaten to death at the barricade with symbiote bread? Like, I can never remember how it happened. Sometimes X-Twitter kind of feels like Lindsay Lohan's rumors and I I even do the little dance on the rooftop in the little gold dress and everything people were like yeah that last page when they're like coming next year that was just a joke on you guys they just goofed on you and I'm like where did some of you get your news like there was no point at which I had ever imagined that Pete Milligan would put the effort out there to say more was coming if more was not coming. That doesn't feel true of this narrative. At the end of All New Dupe, I could have believed more was never coming. But the delay between the, what felt like, you know, great restart moment and much later on the final, you know, first issue coming out left a lot of people unsure, not just about the possibility of more, but the relationship the more would have with the world around it. If this book was originally designed to come out in like 2020, then it would have been the Hickman era Hox Pox, as opposed to the Double Docs, because this is Destinies of X and we already did Dawn of X, so this is Double Docs, you know what I mean? When we they do the Double Docs, that's them dancing. True. <laughs> so, a little whip smart there. And I loved it. Right? And so I was worried personally that this would have nothing to do with the Marvel Universe today. And you know what? It doesn't, but in a way that feels completely current with the Marvel Universe. And like, well, kind it, of maybe it does. You know, we, it's, yeah. Anything right now is possible with the, with the way this book is constructed. Well, and it feels like they're being very coy about some of these resurrections that have happened. Like they haven't been precise in how Zeitgeist came back. Like, am I wrong? Didn't didn't Vivisector die at some point? Like, wasn't he vivisected? I mean, all the all of our precious babies have been like vivisected to little pieces. Like, I mean, yeah. it is a thing. Like, ecstatics, you die good. It's it's yeah. He does and not so, survive to the end, I believe. He's and not so that's issue. that's kind of my thing is like because resurrection is still like a state secret for Krakoa, they can afford to be coy about not telling us how some of these characters came back. They can decide, you know, later on how strongly they want to tie it back to what's going on in Krakoa, if at, if at all. That gives them a lot of storytelling freedom that they don't have to anchor themselves to that, you know, and, and it gives a, a sense of a bigger world where other mutants are doing other things. So 
what I love about Ecstatics is it seems to have existed, like, if it's coming back now and being introduced when it was introduced, it really has, like, come in a really big cultural shift for mutants as a whole. It's kind of existed separately from it, but it's happened at the same time. So, obviously, coming out at the same time as Morrison Run, mutants were, you know, Xavier went public, they were starting their own school, there was a lot of publicity around that, and the idea of having mutant heroes at the time really filled the dream. With the Krakoan era, you know, mutants have their own places to live, to grow, to become a massive society, and, you know, with ecstatics and excellent going on now, it's trying to show that, like, you know, mutants can still be celebrities in this new era where there is a lot more maybe resentment and fear than there was before but they're in a better and safer place so like i love how it contrasts the series contrasts with these two big major paradigm shifts of the x-men genre i love that paradigm shift perspective by encapsulating each one of them in their like block of time great catch super smart in terms of what is going on in these issues about publicity about stunts about docuseries and creating this idea of content of this is what they're trying to sell they're selling this product of these characters and these fights and all these different things about media and a lot of this book is a social commentary on how certain people and certain will chase reality stars and reality stardom as a way to gain fame and money and whatever and anybody's goals or anybody's allowed to have whatever goals they want to have that's you know their life their choices but in terms of these being specifically mute and what that means for them. I truly think the Krakoan era really boosts this idea of their sales and their demand for mutant content because Krakoa was this big cultural shift to these to the characters in the universe of Marvel. This idea was a little it was explored a little bit in New Mutants. Danny Glob and Magic like go to this like publicity like website and like threatens them and basically says like we're not going to beat you up even though we really can because that's not going to look good on us but like hey leave us alone. And the idea I really think that this book offers a very interesting perspective of how the world still sees mutants and how I think while there are plenty of anti-mutant groups there is a large subsect of humans that i think are going to be so fascinated with krakoan life and mutant lifestyle that they will be dying for any amount of content they'll get and pay whatever they can to get it so having excellent commentate on this having you know zeitgeist team having so many followers and gaining this mass amount of popularity i i only think a lot of that success comes from them just being mutants I've also never realized that now I need the team of, of anti-mutant and Uncle Bigot, but uh, I, God damn it. I think one of the things that I do love is that you right away picked up on the idea that, you know, in kind of previous ecstatics and previous X-Force, one of the predominant ideas was that fame culture was the draw and being famous was what made you powerful in many ways for many of these characters. But now it's sort of a fascinating converse where they see how effective and destructive someone else getting that power is. You know, there's a sense of questioning the reality of deep fakes. There's a sense of questioning the reality of the presentation of the narrative. And I really think there is something almost, again, I don't think Pete Milligan is coming for fandom, but I think he is noting that sometimes it is really fascinating how a hero does one thing and the perception and the discussion becomes something very different. And that felt like a central theme throughout the return of our 
team in excellent. How did everybody feel about the use of media as a device, almost as like, almost as the uh, orchis of <laughs> this title? Well, I think it's really important to keep in mind how much fame has changed from 2001 when this book started to today. You know, in the original X-Force and Ecstatics run, they're talking about networks, they're talking about agents, they're talking about films. Dupe is using a handheld camera. And when we come into Giant Size and The Excellent, Dupe is now using a cell phone. They are talking constantly about followers. They are exploring technologies like deepfakes that didn't exist back in the original run. So the nature of fame has changed entirely. And their obsession with the amount of followers that Zeitgeist has, and it's like enormous, incomprehensible numbers, really heightens the sense that social media has completely changed the game for them and it's now almost kind of an arms race speaking of arms i do love robot Rob arm, arm. <laughs> the I linky just, dink <laughs> I love little mechanical arm i love it so much nathan i would love to know how you feel about the reaction of media especially as somebody who spends like such a uh, prevalent amount of time helping to shape the discourse in the form of media that this is meant to specifically parallel you're such an outspoken active member of the X Twitter community. How do you feel about the reaction uh, in story and kind of like that meta contextual element? I, I do love how it maybe not, like you said, maybe didn't come for fandom. I think I do like how it really in a sly way highlighted some of the negative parts of fandom, some of the, you know, obsession to get likes, get followers. I, I, I loved how it evolved, like you were saying, uh, TK, for, to from what it was in 2001 to what it is now because it is so different with the prevalence of social media with the prevalence of you know just the news outlets out there deep fakes the idea that you have to question your sources of media and just like in extra itself you have to question the sources of the discourse and where it's coming from and what the intentions are behind the discourse that is being started you know like if somebody puts out a take that's bad you know are they trying to troll everybody or are they honestly just having a bad faith take do you need to go in and you know educate them on it so just the whole idea that it's the media has evolved with it makes it a lot more real it does put into question where the original ecstatics would fit in the timeline really can stand alone you do have characters like dupe and dead girl who bridge over but it really can stand alone so it does get to explore these more modern takes you do have to do a lot of continuity hand waving to get through ecstatics they even retcon themselves without saying they're retconning themselves but that's the cost of doing business with comics you know it's interesting seeing how the use of media has evolved and i wonder if there's a, a forking between the younger and older members of these teams and their understanding of new media and their ways of deploying it and if some of them like honestly i think it would be really great to get mr sensitive stuck in an old media pattern and to be like called grandpa and see how he reacts to being like <laughs> a gen xer a in gilf. a in a homeland generations world i mean i i made him a gilf i guess i aged him a little too hard um gilf? he's not okay. a gilf he's a delf He's yeah. an elder Dilf. Elder Dilf. <laughs> He's an elder Dilf, like the Elder Scrolls. You know? <laughs> I was going to say, uh, check out the new mod, Elder Dilf, where it just turns every character in Elder Scrolls into hot older men. <laughs> yes. Now, there are a few other things about this title that I think really stand out 
as important to discuss, and I wonder if there is a meta-contextual level that makes this book more ready than ever to come back. When you said the Liechtenstein element of Alred's art, you know, I, I do really believe, TK, that it's sort of unmissable, you know what I mean? And as a result of that, I think one of the things that we can kind of backpedal, contextualize, is how we oftentimes simplify an entire idea with a single example, right? And I think uh, we can sort of see that in the way that I think kind of the Liechtenstein and the Dick Van Dyke effect on WandaVision sort of created a sense of romantic retro atmosphere. And I wonder if the glaring harshness, the combative reality of this book presented in the Allred's signature 1950s, try a smoke, your pregnant wife will love it kind of style is part of what makes the charm of this book work, even as we see Venus de Milo be slowly reconstituted in a vat. How do you guys feel about how uniquely Alred's art is unmistakably one of a kind, no matter when it is? I love the dependability of it. I love that you can look at a book and you can look at, you know, uh, what is it? iZombie, you can look at Ecstatics, you can look at any of their work because he always works with his wife and they make such a beautiful team. Like, and you have that consistency. I think the pair working together really brings the consistency because if you didn't have Laura doing the colors, I think the Mike Allred look would look totally different. But with both of them working together, I love that consistency and it really gives them such a timeless feel from one project to another. Yeah, this book really almost begs for this classic style in some ways. You know, they've never really strayed far from it because even when when they have guest artists, it's like Darwin Cook and Paul Pope who stylistically like resonate so much with the all reds yes uh and uh, la fuente on yes the yes all new dupe mini yes i think there is this group of artists you know all red darwin cook paul pope frank quietly that gave another sphere of art styles especially in marvel comics that you know they weren't the hyper realistic they weren't like the house style they weren't the anime style when those artists get on a book it becomes instantly associated with them and incredibly recognizable when we talk about Morrison's new X-Men the first thing you think about is Quietly's art um, when you talk about Ecstatics of course the first thing you think about is the All Reds I can't imagine this book like the, these two issues because of course I think we'll get guest artists to other points as we did in Ecstatics but I can't imagine starting out with anybody else because it is so inextricable linked to the ecstatics name i love this art this art has everything you need that'll give you exactly what it is this book is trying to tell you stefan everybody (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure if this title and the story would have the same impact without this style of art because i'm trying to imagine this in a more contemporary more modern art style that was that we see across other x books that are all look a little bit more similar to one another and not a bad way consistency is great you love having through lines and you like when things kind of look all the same so you'd be like okay those are all part together but i don't know if this book would work as well as it does if it does match the art because i think this story 
is such a departure from other and traditional X titles that the art also needs to stand out to signify to readers you're getting something different than your traditional comic book. This is something very different. And I really appreciate what the art helps deliver for this product. It's like a camp factor, isn't it? Like Ecstatics and X-Force, all of the whole line has really depended on a degree of camp and the art is the art indicates that. It says, you know, everything we're saying is somewhat campy. Everything we're doing is somewhat campy. There's a there's always kind of like a smirk even when it gets dark. Yeah, I think you see that in how All Red depicts everybody's deaths. Mm-hmm. They are silly the way the writing treats them. Well, he's gone now. But even when you have moments like the death of Vivisector, the art is kind of making something of a joke out of it and making it something almost surreal, but it's still really dark. His guts are hanging out. And it's sort of that sense of darkness that is so pervasive through this book. We have this new team, and this team is focused, as we've said a few times, on a second generation of characters. We have Mike, Tyke's son, love it. We have Fatty, Fat's daughter, and I, you know, the fact that Dupe is just straight up Mr. Sinister making babies out of gays is... I think terrific. I, you know, everybody needs their <laughs> factor. And if Dupe can provide it, more power to that bumpy little bastard. And I love that it is still centered around my precious guy. Guy is such a necessary element to the success of the book as an idea. Because he is such a great leading guy Friday. Of course, seeing Miles die at the end when we had seen Miles have such a nice moment in giant size. So echoed Bloke from the original where we saw him have the happy moment on the bench with his boyfriend. And then he dies at the end of the issue. So there really is kind of a sense of parallel full circle that I think we're going to see more. One of the things that I, I know that Mike Alred and Pete Milligan, by the way, Pete Milligan is my holy spirit. Like, I need to not fuck around with this. As a guy who loves Hellblazer, I, I bring it up all the time. His is the Hellblazer run, period. Like, I, I hear other people and I understand their perspective, but him and Camo's Hellblazer is my Hellblazer. And, like, everybody is welcome to theirs, but, like, I, I'll never get over that run. It, it'll, it changed my life. And, like, Milligan's understanding of Human Target rewrote me. And, like, I, I can't sing this guy's praises enough. I'm such a mega fan. But just to kind of drive it back here a minute, um, it, it always takes, like, ten issues for a Milligan story to make sense. That's just, like, a staple. And so I found myself happy for the reset status quo of this issue, but aware that this was really just getting the engine started. What is everybody looking forward to most from the continued presence of the excellent? I need Venus de Milo back sooner so than bad. 15 years from now. So I bad, think it's so safe right. to say that's going to happen. Better, because like I'm like, you know, we got from one issue to another, she's got a face now. I'm like, give me her back. Oh. Well, I think they were like counting down from 15 years in Drops giant to size five. to five years in uh, the excellent. So that's a pretty good, uh, it's a pretty good time crunch. I am looking forward to seeing how they can expand the social commentary and the social media commentary over the course of a lot of issues, what they're going to sort of reflect on 
And, you know, especially in in sort of consideration of things like X Twitter and how energetic the fandom is in ways that are really rewarding and sometimes really problematic. I'm also really curious how they will tie in with Krakoa, not tie in, but maybe comment in a much more metatextual way. What sort of references we'll see. It's the time now in every segment where I say that we need more slice of life books out of the Krakoa era. And I'm not sure that this will be one of them, but I think it can serve the role of a funny, silly, somehow still really deep contrasting presence that takes us a little bit out of the Cold War between the Quiet Council and the X-Men and Moira's, you know, attempt to destroy us all. It's this is going to be an important book, regardless of how it ties into continuity. But I'm interested to see what they do, because they've been playing around with it in really fascinating ways. I need them to go to Krakoa now. I have I, to see them. I mean, that's yeah. what I want. That's what I, I want. Them them like, but I do, like you said, TK, I didn't even realize, like, I do, I, I love Krakoa. I love all of that intrigue, but it was really nice just to not have to deal with it for an uh, issue of X series. I was like, holy shit, like, <gasps> it's so light and breathy, even though it's not. It's got, like, <laughs> some really deep messages in it, but it's, like, compared to the shit that's going on in Krakoa right now, it's like, oh, okay. I am looking forward through to the continued themes of fame culture, of how perception and how whoever gets their story out first can dictate the narrative of mm -hmm. what that means for the actual truth. Because both sides aren't exactly trying to show the truth. They're both trying to show the version that makes them both look the best and how to amass this idea of the biggest following of this is what I'm saying the truth is versus what they're saying the truth is. And more of it actually kind of lies in the middle somewhere. And I'm also looking forward to the stories and struggles of these children characters dealing with the repercussions that their parents sent forth and the conflicts that arise trying to deal with when you have famous superhero parents and you're not quite like them, but people are treating you like they are. That last point especially is a very fun one because you see it drawn seriously with characters like Franklin and Valeria Richards, but here you have, again, an opportunity to introduce an element of camp and uh, exasperation and you know you see these these children throwing their hands up and being like well i didn't ask for this and then also at the same time being like well but i am participating in it i love that they have their own ongoing thing in ecstatics and i also love when like x-men stuff like very briefly and quickly interjects and the extent to which i would love to see an interjection is the is the synthesis of these two teams excellent and ecstatics coming together and working with someone like jumbo carnation in doing some sort of like crocoan factory and taking these hap these these happenings to the next level. Oh my god, Jumbo Carnation belongs in this book. Jumbo Carnation as like the Andy Warhol to these two groups is is really what I the direction that I'm hoping that this takes. 